There is nothing worse to a tenant than a bad landlord. There's nothing worse to a landlord than a bad tenant, except maybe a bad tenant that doesn't pay their rent. I've had both. And as bad as it got, I certainly never killed anyone or thought about killing anyone. But in the history of landlord-tenant disputes, that isn't always the case. But what about when a landlord discovers that her tenants are worth more to her dead than alive? I'm Christina. And I'm Kristen. And today on The Real Crime Podcast, we'll be telling you all about the murdering little old lady next door, Dorothea Puente, and the Boarding House Murders. Okay, so clearly Dorothea Puente is not a quote-unquote good guy in this tale, but every villain has her backstory, and hers is a doozy. Sure is. Yeah. Uh, So let's start this one from the very beginning, before we get to the point of actually explaining to you this little old lady who murdered people in a boarding house, okay? Okay. Dorothea Puente was born in 1929 in Redlands, California, to Jesse James Gray and Trudy May Gray. Uh, Jesse James, kind of a badass name. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I was like, that's that's a pretty hardcore name. So she was a great person, though. No, definitely not. Definitely not. So she was born into poverty as the sixth of seven children. Dorothea's upbringing was rough to say the least. Both of her parents were at best alcoholics, drunks. They were neglectful, abusive, generally left the children to fend for themselves. While out drinking. Exactly. So in 1937, when Dorothea was eight years old, her father actually died from tuberculosis. Dorothea's mother, Trudy, was often out drinking or passing the time with one of her many boyfriends. Because of that, Dorothea learned very early on what a little bit of public sympathy could get her. And she and her brothers and sisters quickly learned that the local church and local community would feed them and comfort them after the loss of their father and the regular absence of their mother. Unfortunately, that assistance never really went past that. So it it was rather superficial, you know, it it was helping them, but it wasn't really changing their lives in any way, just keeping them alive. Dorothea and her siblings found the most comfort and support actually in the the local Mexican community. They were regularly taken in for meals, shelter, taught life skills like cooking and cleaning. The children actually appeared to be their happiest and healthiest, even though they were essentially fending for themselves. But uh, unfortunately, like anything else, their luck quickly ran out when social services took notice of the absence of their parents, and the children at that point were ripped apart and placed into different foster homes and, and uh, foster care. She did stay with her brother, though, right? One of her- So there are a couple of kind of 
moments in this where they're pulled apart, brought back together, pulled apart, brought back together. I, I read this book, uh, Murders at the Boarding House by Ryan Green, or Buried at the Boarding House. I'll get you the, the it'll be in the show notes for the exact details. Great book. And he, he really delves into all of the details. Basically, she is able at one point to have a reconciliation with her brothers and sisters because her aunt hears about this whole scenario that the kids are in foster care and she decides to swoop in and take them and uh, brings them all together in the house. However, then social services is introduced again and realizes that there's just way too many children under one roof. And it's a lot to take on. It is. It is. And she already had kids of her own, too. So it's like a a really big household at this point. And there wasn't enough financially. There wasn't enough space. So again, the kids were pulled out of the home and put into foster care. After this point, as soon as Dorothea could, she basically made a run for it. At the age of 16, she took up with another teen runaway and went into prostitution. At this point, it was, you know, 1945. She was 16 years old, beautiful, exotic, interesting. And the soldiers returning from World War II kept her very busy, to say the least. That's so young. It's so young. It's so young. Now, the first time Dorothea was able to reinvent herself was at this point. She told the soldiers that she was of Mexican descent, which she was not. And even started to affect an accent. And she told them that when her parents had died, she was very young and she was just all alone in the world. And that's why she had come to this point. She kind of created this very exotic persona Mm -hmm. to appeal to people even more. Now, she did speak Spanish, right? Yes. Yes, she did. Um, She definitely did speak Spanish. But this was like an all the time as if English was a second language sort of accent versus she just learned it. Right. Because of the neighborhood she grew up in sort of thing. No, no. I. I, Oh, yeah. Okay. Just saying on top of. On top of everything else. Yeah, absolutely. So she Uh, could get away with it. Right. And because of all of the time that she spent with like the the Mexican families, she knew so much about Mexico, uh, even though she had never been there. Like she'd never, she'd never been outside of California at this point. So combined with her soft, pale skin and hair, she quickly became this sort of exotic beauty. You know, her, her skin tone and coloration was just so different from other women who were of actual Mexican descent. And so she wasn't, she wasn't exactly, exactly. (laughs) So she became this sort of like exotic beauty, you know, And one of her Johns in particular, Fred McFall, was simply infatuated with her. He was just totally obsessed. So much that only weeks after their first meeting, he asked her to marry him. Now, she was still 16 or 17 or 18 at this point? She was still 16. Okay. Yeah, this was, this was, it all happened in a very quick time frame. So she went from moving out on her own, going into a hotel room, becoming a prostitute, meeting this guy and getting engaged, like, in months sort of thing. So, yeah. As we will find out. (laughs) Seriously, seriously. Her marriage was tumultuous. I'll say it was it was a rough one. Yeah, at least that. Yeah, at least during their time together, Dorothea gave birth to two children. The first one she dumped on her mother-in-law, basically to pursue other things like drinking and partying and the more important thing living her life. Right. 
granted she was 16. So, you know, maybe she just wasn't mature enough. But then the second one, she actually went into labor and didn't tell anyone that she went into labor, brought herself to the hospital, gave birth to the child, and then immediately just put it up for adoption without having any type of discussion with her husband or other family members. She didn't want it. No. And that was really the just the last straw for Fred. So he let Dorothea go. He filed for divorce. And Dorothea was back to prostitution and husband hunting. That was just kind of what she did. You see this pattern repeated right. a lot. This is not going to be the no. last time. This exactly. Happens. You're going to hear this again. And you're going to say, wait, didn't didn't they just talk about this? No, 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 no. Dorothea definitely was a person who loved patterns. And she followed these same patterns same patterns over and over again. It was at this time that Dorothea actually started to pursue a new way of taking advantage of her many Johns or Marks. Dorothea began getting her Johns as drunk as possible so she could avoid sex, which was kind of odd for a woman in the business of prostitution, but you know, to each their own. And it was kind of smart. I, it was, it was because she wasn't, she's a prostitute without having to actually put herself at risk in that regard. Exactly. So with that, once they passed out, she would simply take anything of value, checkbooks, cash, jewelry, watches. She started cashing fake checks, all of that. And frankly, the Johns were so embarrassed by being taken that they didn't report it. I wouldn't. Right. Seriously. Oh, you tried to pay someone for sex and you got too drunk to, you know. And then she robbed you? (laughs) So crazy. Yeah. I wouldn't report it. No, no, I probably would not tell the police that at all. So that's pretty smart of her. Yes, yes. However, in 1949, when Dorothea was only 19 years old, she found herself in the sights of the wrong guy. You see, this Mark was actually an undercover LAPD officer, and Dorothea was swiftly arrested on charges of prostitution and fraud. So she got away with it for a few years. She did, she did. She definitely, you know, moved it forward for a while. Dorothea would then take her first trip behind bars, one of many, and her time in gave her a great deal of education that up till now she'd been lacking. You see, when you put a bunch of criminals together in a small space, they unfortunately take advantage of learning from one another, and that's exactly what Dorothea did. She got all the information she could. And she's not, you know, stupid. She's a pretty smart... Yeah. And clever little lady. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's always so frustrating because it's like, you know, if you could have just taken that intelligence and that capability and put it into something, channeled it into something other than criminal activity, you could have had the life you wanted. So easy. You shouldn't know anything better. It's true. It's true. I know. I know. A lot of it is situational, too. So once released, she went back to her old ways of prostitution. However, after the birth of her third child, which was also put up for adoption, this was in 1950, she decided that a better option would be to find another husband to keep her. Why not? Exactly. Exactly. That's what I do when I'm having a bad day. I just go find a new husband. Right. No, that's, that's pretty not true. simple. That's not true. <laughs> Um, I just look at my husband and be like, fix this. Let me be a stay-at-home wife, please. No, nothing. So at this point, at, you know, the ripe old age of 19, um, she really wasn't quite the prize that she used to be. She was living a very rough life, you know, for the early part. Lots of drinking. Yeah, yeah. And that ages you quickly, quickly. Um. 
on top of being, you know, essentially homeless too for a lot of this time as well. So she had perfected her faux Mexican accent and perfected her kitchen skills, which gave her just enough intrigue and belly filling goodness to find someone to take her on. And the next guy up was Axel Johansson or Johansson, depending. I'd probably say Johansson if he's Swedish. He is. He is. He's a Swedish fisherman. Axel and Dorothea's marriage was as wild as her first marriage. It didn't result in any unwanted pregnancies. However, after nearly 10 years, it ended with Dorothea running back to her roots on the streets. Axel would be gone for long stretches of time. But during that time, Dorothea was less of a housewife and more of a drunk. When Axel would return, he would spend his time trying to beat some sense into her and cleaning up the mess that she had basically left No behind. messes, meaning she was still taking John's while he was away. Taking John's, and the house was a disaster right. on top of it, too. I mean, so he'd come home, and, like, the neighbors would be like, what are you going to do about this woman sort of thing? Right, and, there's men coming in and out. In and out, all yeah. All the time. Yeah. And he literally did. I mean, it was it was incredibly and it was definitely an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. And he would try to, quote unquote, beat sense into her. Well, that is her pattern. Yeah. Her choosing men. Now, yeah. Also, her parents had the same sort of relationship. So that's all she knew. That's all she knew. Absolutely. And she she really continues this on. And you can definitely tell like the kind of the psychological aspects of what led her down this road and everything. Right. It's. You know, it's always frustrating when someone does seem like they could be so capable, like I was just saying, but at the same time, what are you going to do? If there's if there's no education, if there's no way to learn it, there's nothing, nothing actually, like if her time in prison had actually been uh, something that allowed her to learn from her mistakes or learn actual life skills instead right. of just learning from other criminals, I mean, she would have just totally conquered life she's she's an intelligent capable person it's 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 crazy so basically once axel had enough uh the two split dorothea was nowhere near at this point the looker that she used to be she and axel had been married for about 10 years so at this point we're looking at you know 29 30 years old um so old right (laughs) now But um, she had also gained a lot of weight at this point. Yes, yes. She had kind of bulked up a little bit, which we all do when we're comfortable. But uh, she did love cooking, and so she did a lot of cooking. And, and she, ate the food. Exactly, exactly. She also and drank. ate the food and drank. And that's just not a good combination for a healthy lifestyle. At the start of the 60s, Dorothea had become a madam. So she was running a boarding house. And at this point, she went back to the streets, but she needed other people to do her dirty work she for her. She realized that she wasn't... She wasn't going to pull in the money that she used to. Right. You know, she just didn't have what it takes anymore. And she wasn't interested. And, like, quite frankly, no, I get it, girl. Like, right. I wouldn't be interested she either. She interested to begin with. <laughs> oh, God. It's exhausting. So she hired some... She hired some ladies, exactly. And she was running this boarding house, which eventually was shut down as being a quote-unquote den of sin. And once again, Dorothea would find herself behind bars. She was only in for 90 days this time around, but she went to work. Dorothea used the time to brand herself as a holistic doctor, doctor. 
She memorized drug uses and combinations. She flipped through medical magazines, memorizing symptoms that might someday come in handy for her. And by the time she was released, she was actually able to secure a position as a home health aide. So this is really like her first legitimate job right. in and, the world. Um, obviously, they did not do a background check. No, no. Definitely not. You know, it was the 60s. I don't think uh, hitchhiking was still a heavy duty thing. (laughs) People weren't thinking things through, you know, so definitely no background checks. Like everything else, Dorothea found a way to exploit this job. She was kind and caring to her clients, so they didn't seem to mind or notice when a prescription bottle or two went missing or when Dorothea would whip up a home-cooked meal in their kitchen with their money and food, but they would both indulge. Those in her care trusted her completely, and she was literally robbing them blind at every turn. All little knickknacks and anything she could really just Anything she could get her hands on, exactly. And a lot of these people, you know, were probably suffering from things like dementia or variety of illnesses so maybe their memories weren't as good as they could be it was they were just easy marks they were easy people to take advantage of someone did mention that they thought she had been stealing Mm -hmm. and she would just kind of brush it off as you know oh yeah elderly memory loss oh those patients of mine you know absolutely and she was very believable and convincing yeah i mean she's a great liar to look at this woman too um she had perfected the you know the tales she wove the the webs she spun and she had this look of being this innocent grandmotherly type so no one suspected anything no at this point she's what in her 30s yes and we're calling her a grandmotherly exactly i oh it's bad it's bad (laughs) As, as she ages i go into it uh shortly but like by the time she was 40 people thought she was in her 50s or 60s so she, she looked rough. Well, she actually did that on purpose at some point. She let her hair go gray. And just kind of went for it because, because it gave her a less assuming sort of Right, and like leading image. up to that, she was very particular with the way that she looked. She did her hair and makeup every day, made sure she had the finest clothes. Mm-hmm. She was very um, vain, I guess. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. So at this point, she realizes that she's no longer this little hottie toddy. Right. So she's got to find another way to, to work so. the system and, and to work the people around her. So once her divorce to Axel was finalized and they decided, she, she basically started taking the stolen quote unquote earnings to acquire a large house on the corner of 21st Street and F Street in Sacramento, California. Because of her previous conviction, she wouldn't be able to run a boarding house as the fear that it would quickly turn into a brothel would be there. Um, But that didn't actually stop her. And she set up a boarding house that was just illegal. And having all of her victims, you know, clients, uh, right in one place made stealing from them just so much easier. So at this point, while seeking out a hired hand at the the ripe old age of 40, which oh I'm so close to, it's terrifying. Uh, and it to, to stress, this is not a pretty 40. This is a could be a 60-year-old or you would think they're a 60-year-old sort of thing. Like, yeah, this is like a Golden Girls 40, you know? Because. Oh. Right? Well, you watch the Golden Girls. Know, and you're like, wait, they're supposed to be 50? Right. I was like, huh. they're 50? Wow. So I thought they were 75 or 80. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's like a Golden Girls 40. Uh, so 
She's seeking out this hired hand to help her around this new illegal boarding house, and she meets Roberto Puente, who is a 20-year-old Mexican immigrant who is looking for love and probably a green card, to be totally frank. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. (laughs) Their whirlwind romance brought them to an over-the-top wedding in Mexico City. It was basically like every story that Dorothea had ever told and it was finally coming true. I think it's it's so important to just note again that this woman had basically built a personality on being a Mexican immigrant and this at this point when she's 40 years old and getting married in she's Mexico City Mexico. that's the first time <laughs> she went to Mexico, the first time. And that's crazy. That's crazy. Um Yeah, so by now it's 1968. The boarding house, although not completely legal, it was fully operational. And Dorothea was once again a loving wife and had so many people to care for. Roberto, on the other hand, very quickly after the marriage was made legal, started to stray. He basically kept as many girlfriends as he could find and after a while just moved out of the home that he and Dorothea shared. Frankly, it it didn't bother Dorothea at all. It was kind of less work for her. And you see, her home and her status within the community were ever growing at this point. And that's really what she was after. She found herself wealthier than she'd ever been with people's money, other people's money, and in a position to make tremendous donations to all of the community's needs. So she was essentially this saint and a cornerstone of the Hispanic community in Sacramento, California. Right. She would take in, like, little kids and feed them, give them candy Everything. when she passed them on the street. Right. Like, a grandma. Exactly. She, uh, she had friends in high places. What nobody realized, though, or turned a blind eye to, was the fact that all of this wealth was coming from a steady flow of government checks that were meant to be sent to either her clients or, you know, men that she met in bars and got a little too drunk. But instead, she was filing paperwork and having them redirected directly to her bank account. So Dorothea had all of these new friends in high places. She'd made a name for herself within the community. And she was really starting to feel like she could do almost anything without consequence. She had another post-Roberto whirlwind marriage to an alcoholic named Pedro who disappeared almost as soon as he arrived. It was basically this guy who turned Dorothea off of needing to be someone's wife. He beat her senseless at every turn, and he wasn't missed when he finally disappeared. They were together for like a month. Yeah, it was. And then the marriage was annulled. Super short-lived. So this was her fourth marriage. Right. So instead. And last. No. There's one more. Oh. Yeah. Don't worry. I'll get there. Okay. I'll get there. So it's okay. We'll get there. So instead, she turned to friendship, which is kind of this new concept to Dorothea, right? Because the last time we remember her having a friend was this girl that she roomed with when she was 16 to become a prostitute. And she was just like another runaway and they shared the expense of a hotel room. Right. So basically her acquaintances were Johns that she picked up. Exactly. And clients. That she cared for and stole from. And shitty husbands, exactly. So this is when she met Ruth Monroe. Now, Ruth helped feed the needy throughout Sacramento, and together she and Dorothea went into business. And then Ruth became ill, suddenly. Ruth also started drinking all the time, 
suddenly. And the person who was there through it all was Dorothea. Ruth would become Dorothea's first true victim. By 1982, Ruth was dead, and somehow it had been deemed a suicide. Though Ruth's family felt the whole situation was very suspicious, and the Sacramento police were getting more and more reports of criminal activity that seemed to lead back to Dorothea, Dorothea had connections. She knew people in high places. So she went to prison again, but not for long. So basically the rundown of what happened with Ruth, Ruth's husband was in the hospital. Right. Um, he was basically dying in the hospital. So Dorothea suggested that Ruth move in with her and they would, you know, be golden girls together. Exactly. They'd live um, together, live out all their fantasies. And Thank she you was, for being a friend. Right. <laughs> Except she wasn't really a friend. She wasn't a friend at all. She killed her. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, pretending that she was taking care of her to, as far as Ruth's kids knew, Dorothea was taking her to hospital appointments administering medication, just Mm -hmm. keeping a close eye on her, making sure she was okay, when in reality she was drugging her and slowly killing her. Right. So while in prison this time around, Dorothea realized, okay, she's now lost the business she was running. She's not going to be able to do the boarding house thing again easily when she gets out. She's got to secure herself financially. So in her loneliness during solitary confinement, she actually involved herself in the prison pen pal program where she met Everson Gilmuth. Now, the day she was released from this prison term, it was Everson who picked her up. And before long, Dorothea was collecting his pension checks in a joint account and Everson was dead. He was the perfect mark for her because he was an elderly he was, he was an elderly man. He was lonely. He didn't see his children all the time. Obviously, he was lonely if he was... Right, writing you know. to people in prison. This keeps coming up. Like, it's it's interesting. Uh, prison relationships are fascinating. We're going to have to dive into that at some point. Because I actually was chatting with someone on Instagram about that the other day, too. Like, about prison... They posted something about prison relationships. Were they in prison? No, no. I'm No, I am not chatting... <laughs> I I do not have any prison relationships, but I I find it fascinating. I really do. So what's a little wild is, well, I mean, all of this, but to me, how she disposed of Everson. Yes. Yeah. So she hires this local guy and she gives him Everson's pickup truck as payment. She hired him to do work around the house, The house, right? yeah. And she said, can you build me this box that's like six feet long? And he had been getting paid, so he was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. You're paying me well. Right. And then she gave him a pickup truck, so he's like, yeah, absolutely. Like, this is super generous. So he's like, yeah, I'll build a six-foot-long six box for you. And she's like, I just want to put some books in there and then bring them to my storage unit. And he's like, yeah, totally. That makes sense. Exactly. So he did it. And... When she asked for his help getting the box out of the apartment and into the truck, he did it. He didn't even flinch when Dorothea had nailed the box shut to keep the books, if you will, from falling out. Or when she suddenly decided that nothing in the box was actually worth keeping. Halfway to the storage center. Exactly. So they're simply just going to stop on the side of the highway and dump it off into this area where people fish and people dump a lot of stuff. And he helps her. And he's like, huh. Into water. Right. So it sank to the Exactly. Bottom. And he's like, that's weird. But she okay. gave me a truck and she paid me. And, 
you know, I, I he, he was an ex-con, so he had a hard time, you know, securing work or whatever. So he's like, yeah, no, this is great. This is great. Something tells me, though, that when a fisherman hmm, found that box in that dumping spot and discovered that inside was the decomposing corpse of Everson, that maybe he kind of gave it all a second thought. But I don't know. To each their own. Uh, probably not. Yeah. As, you know. They didn't realize it was Everson for years. For years. I know this poor guy. He he had so badly decomposed at this point that they did not make the connection. And they, you know, they didn't figure so it again, out. So she got away with it. Exactly. And she was still, because he was technically still alive and had just sort of wandered off, she was still right, collecting she, his right. pension and making money off of him. And there was nothing that anyone could do about it, which is crazy. So at this point, the 1980s, this was the golden age for Dorothea. In her sick, twisted world, she had all the victims she could want right at her fingertips in her brand new boarding house. She had regular checks and pensions coming in and an incredible relationship with the social workers who had heard rumors about her but couldn't believe they were true. So they kept placing new tenants with her when one of the former ones just simply disappeared. And also, she was one of the only boarding houses that would accept alcoholics. Um, right, the really troubled folks. Right. Yeah. Which would be perfect for her as Mark. Exactly, because she could do whatever they want. And generally speaking, there's no one to miss them. You know, it's it's right. the it's the the non-victim victims that you see out there. Like when prostitutes go missing or when homeless people go missing, they become these perfect victims because they don't have anyone close to them checking in on their whereabouts, you right. know? So all the social workers would just place them with her. Right. Because they had nowhere else to place them, really. And when they would go into her home, here she was, this grandmotherly type, cooking everybody dinner and listening to music and playing cards and having great conversation. It's not... It's not the bad situation that anyone would expect it to be, you know? Right. So... Between 1982 and 1988, Dorothea murdered at least nine people, but it's likely closer to 15. Ruth and Everson were her first. Then she began switching to less personal victims. Dorothy Miller, who was an Army veteran, was last seen alive in 1987. She was a tenant in Puente's home, and... It is known that Dorothea actually assumed Dorothy's identity to gain access to both her finances and her prescription drugs. Dorothy was drugged and then disposed of by Dorothy on Dorothea on the property. Benjamin Fink was a 55-year-old struggling alcoholic. He was last seen being brought up to Dorothea's room to feel better. He was also drugged, murdered, and buried in the yard of the boarding house. Leona Carpenter was a 78-year-old woman in Puente's care. Her cause of death was a drug overdose, but she was bedridden, and the drugs that killed her were kept across the room. Betty Palmer, who was also 78, was found buried in the yard of the boarding house without her hands, feet, and head. James Gallup had survived a brain tumor, surgery, and a heart attack, but he was no match for Puente's cocktail of drugs that were likely served to him with his dinner before she disposed of him. Vera Faye Martin, who was 64 at the time of death 
is thought to have been buried alive. When her body was exhumed from the boarding house burial, there was a pattern of claw marks consistent with someone trying to dig themselves out. Chief, known only as such, was Dorothea's handyman. He was also a victim. She couldn't keep him around to tell the stories he had seen as he was the person who helped her dig the holes and bury the bodies. And finally, the man who would be her undoing, Alvaro Bert Montoya. Bert suffered from schizophrenia and developmental disabilities. He had immigrated to the U.S. along with his mother and sister, but was orphaned at a young age. He was a special case to Dorothea, given that he shared her fabled descent and parentless upbringing. And schizophrenic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that too. Um, diagnosis. Right. Bert, who had been placed especially by a woman named Judy, would be Dorothea's last victim. After Bert's death and disappearance, Judy popped over unannounced to the house. Dorothea stated that Bert had become ill and was resting, but Judy felt uneasy and returned the next day to a new story. At this point, the heat was on for Dorothea. She made a run for it, as her yard was dug up and body after body was discovered. Dorothea Puente was arrested and brought in. She was quoted as telling the press, I was a good person once. Another lie. Exactly. Oh my God. Totally another lie. (laughs) In 1993, she was found guilty of nine murders and sentenced. She occasionally gave an interview or two, and she actually even wrote and published her own cookbook, Cooking with a Serial Killer. Then, in 2011, at the age of 82, an age none of her victims got to see, Dorothea died of natural causes behind bars. The home at 1426 F Street in Sacramento is currently privately owned. It was purchased in 2010 for about $226,000, and it looks like its current estimated value is about $798,000. That is crazy. I know. Ghost Hunters actually did an episode there, so if you're curious about any haunting activities, ghostly activities, something pretty interesting is they've never redone a lot to the interior. So the wood floors underneath the carpeting and things, they're original and they probably have bloodstains and markings from the murder victims still in there. I think that the creepiest bit is that there's a sign outside of the house that reads trespassers will be drugged and buried in the yard. I mean, damn. That's that's dark. um, That's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. (laughs) It's kind of dark. It's It's very dark. dark. Super dark. You know, there's also true. If you Google image this house, uh, which of course I did, and I looked up as much as I could, like from the realtor perspective, mm. there's weird stuff outside of this house. There's like a hanging Superman doll on the front porch. That's very strange. It's really bizarre. Really bizarre. So, you know, definitely check it out. I think it's also kind of important to notice that this house is really close to all of the houses around it, kind of like in the Ariel Castro case. Yeah. Um, where neighbors, I mean, they must have figured something was going on. 
And I know there had been complaints about like smells and stuff coming from her house. And she'd blame it on dead rats or, you know, sewage or something like that. Definitely not blaming it on the dead humans. No, no, definitely not. And a lot of the burial was happening at night. Like a lot of the... Well, it can't happen during the day. Exactly. But isn't it weird (laughs) that... uh, Like I've never gardened at night. You know, I'm pretty sure if my neighbors like who live as close to me as, you know, this house is to their neighbors. I'm pretty sure if my neighbors who I'm close with saw me outside, like digging up stuff and putting plants in at like midnight, they'd have some questions for me the next day. I'm sure she could explain it all the way. Oh, I'm sure. Fantastic liar. I'm sure. And to clarify the book that I mentioned at the beginning where I, I did get a lot of information and it goes into fantastic detail. It's written by Ryan Green And the book is called Buried Beneath the Boarding House. So I definitely got the name wrong. Sorry about that. But I got it on Amazon. Um, It's not wildly expensive. It's only like 145 pages. I thought you were going to say dollars. I was like, that is wildly expensive (laughs) for a book. (laughs) No, it's only like 145 pages or something. So I I read it fairly quickly. Quickly. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a great, it tells it. It tells it like a story. You'd think you were reading some sort of nonfiction because a life like this Right. Or you, it feels like you're reading fiction. fiction yeah, because yeah, a, a life like this feels like fiction. And it's kind of crazy to think that it's just her story. Someone's life. Yeah, it's just her story. The fact, I think the fact that she wrote and published a cookbook. Uh, and the name of the cookbook? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I want it. I mean, I, I don't, thought about it. go to, though? So I hope it goes to the families of the victims or something like that. Or some but charity. Right. It's probably, I mean, she's dead now. And so she's right. got, I'm sure she didn't have an estate, you she know. She doesn't have children that right. are connected to her. Right. Exactly. Maybe to all her ex-husbands who she screwed over, to all the Johns that she stole from and people she stole from. They're probably not alive either. I don't know. She's younger than all of them. I would be curious. I would be really curious. We'll have to check out the book. We'll have to find out who publishes it. You know, (laughs) somebody's making money off of it. And it's crazy. It's crazy. So that is the story of Dorothea Puente. Um, I don't know. Uh, Puente. 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 (laughs) Puente. Yeah, that's the story of Dorothea Puente. And I'm losing my mind. Okay. I don't know how to end things right now. I keep knocking into stuff. Wow. Poof. Poof. It's a rough day. Oh my gosh. And really quick, uh, shout out to Cecil, the newest edition of the Real Crime Podcast family, cat family, four-legged furry friend family. We'll be posting pictures. Yes, we will. He is so precious, guys. I can't even. I'm totally in love with him. And of course, named for the Cecil Hotel. Obviously. Obviously. (laughs) I think you're one of the, actually, you're not one of the only people. To figure it out? Yeah. It's When I announced the name, I got a lot of, what? (laughs) <laughs> and Christina was just like, oh, because of the hotel. Exactly. exactly. That's exactly where I got it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I kind of figured I would be too. Because when, so my husband, Cole, really wanted her to name the kitten uh, Feanor because uh, he's Lord a of the Rings. Lord of the Rings fan. And um, when she found out or when he found out that she did not name him that and named him Cecil and I explained that it was like a true crime reference or whatever he's like what's the hotel Cecil and I was like oh my god (laughs) exactly I was like well clearly we're gonna talk about it so yeah 
Uh, or what's the Cecil Hotel? I called it the Hotel Cecil. It's the Cecil Hotel. It is the Cecil Hotel. I don't know. I need to have more caffeine this morning. All right, so, so let's get you some more coffee. Exactly. And also, um, September 18th. September 18th. I know. It's creeping CT up. I'm so excited. Uh, Going to be entering my child in the costume contest. I'm super psyched about that. Uh, Skeet Ulrich did cancel, so he's not going to be oh, no. a guest anymore. But Matthew Lillard will still be there. Oh, goodness. And Kathy Najimi. <laughs> Focus, focus. She's on my wall. I know, I know. And when does that new one come out? When does the new Hocus Next Pocus? fall. Next fall? Yeah, so far uh, away. Okay, I'll survive. Fall 2022. I can't wait. Okay, it's going to be amazing. So we're big Hocus Pocus fans. We're big Halloween fans. Kristen's already decorated. I'm easing into decorating. Ago. Yeah, I'm easing <laughs> into decorating because it's, you know, we're going to be gone for like a chunk of September and I want everything up and people appreciating it. But I've got some new skeletons I'm going to play with and everything Exciting. in the front yard. Eee, so much fun. So, guys, thank you so much for listening in. Um, make sure you're rating and reviewing. Thank you for the reviews that we've been getting and the feedback we've been getting. Um, we've like doubled our listenership in the past month or so, which is incredible. It's a word. Our listenership. <laughs> It's a word now because I just used it. Uh, so thank you for tuning in. It's it's so appreciated. And I've also gotten a lot of feedback. Our process of doing this really changed from the first episode to now. I think yes. we kind of grew in a lot of ways. We've changed the way we record. We have changed kind of the scripted nature of it where we still talk freely about it. But at the same time, like we have a little more structure to everything. And I think we both prefer the way we're doing it now. So I think I'm going to add like a little, you know, pre-note, pre-roll note sort of thing to some of the earlier episodes and kind of dive in and say, hey, you know, this is how we first started, but make sure you listen on because things change and everything because you never want to judge Maybe anybody. just delete them. No, I because I think there's a lot of great context there. Like people love the Raina Maraquin case and they love that telling of it. It's just so different yeah. from where we are now. And I think we also recognize that the way we reacted to some of this stuff probably could have been taken as insensitive. But in regards to our reaction, it wasn't meant to be an insensitivity. It was more us just not knowing what we were doing and giggling uncontrollably and probably having a few too many white claws to calm our nerves before we right. actually recorded. So now we drink coffee. Exactly. <laughs> now we drink coffee and we, we feel much more comfortable about it. So, you know, thank you so much for the feedback. Thank you for sticking with us and listening in. And just, we are so appreciative, honestly. So definitely come and check us out at CT Horror Fest and we'll try and post some stuff. Um, we've got some cool stuff coming up in the next com coming weeks and yep. we're definitely going to be more Halloween oriented in the next couple of weeks. So get ready for some spooky stuff. And um, if you have any suggestions for us, if you want to hear anything from us, reach out. You can DM us at the Real Crime Podcast on Instagram. You can send us an email, the Real, the Real Crime, Crime Podcast, Podcast at gmail.com. I'm proud of you for not saying at. Yay! Um, you can send an email to the Real Crime Podcast at gmail.com. See, I perfected it last time. Um, All right, we're rambling on at this point. I know we are. I know. All right, so that's it. Thanks, Thanks so much. Listening. Love you. Bye. Bye.